HSD are experts in delivering tech solutions to the vet sector, working with clients such as the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, ASQA and the VRQA. HSD understand the complexities of VET, its systems and data. We specialise in systems integration, customer relationship management systems, Microsoft platforms and migrating organisations to the cloud. So whether you're looking for advice on integrating your systems, meeting your data reporting requirements or looking to gain insights into your stakeholders, HSD are here to help. Visit hsd.com.au or follow us on LinkedIn. Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 50, and to use a cricketing analogy, the podcast has officially cracked the half century and is getting its eye in for another 50. And we'll leave cricket to one side because much as I could talk sport all day, this is definitely not a sports podcast. You haven't dialed into the wrong one. So returning to the focus on Australia's tertiary education sector, today's episode is a conversation I found really interesting. Douglas Proctor, the Pro Vice-Chancellor Global Engagement at Swinburne University, joins me to discuss international education. I particularly enjoyed our chat, not just because Douglas is such a thoughtful leader in international education, but because he brings a very different perspective to the discussion. He's returned to Australia to take up the job at Swinburne, having previously been the Director of International Affairs at University College Dublin. So he's been looking at international education in Australia from a distance, watching our debates play out in a broader context. As many of you may know, unlike Australia, Ireland managed its way through COVID with its borders open. So Irish universities were welcoming international students throughout the pandemic with measures in place to protect and keep them safe and the same for the local community. That sense of welcoming international students, even during such a difficult time, really flows through Douglas's observations and it complements his focus on and deep interest in global engagement. I'm sure you'll find this conversation just as interesting as I did, and I suspect if they haven't already, there will be a number of people in Melbourne and Canberra keen to draw on Douglas's insights and experience as we reopen our borders to students. Well, it is a great pleasure, and I do often say that, and I do um, at times interview people who are listeners to the podcast, but this is someone who tells me they were listening to me as they uh, wandered the streets of Dublin, um, thinking about what was happening in the education sector in Australia. And I'm talking about Douglas Proctor, who has uh, recently returned to Australia uh, to take up a, a significant role at um, Swinburne University. Douglas, thank you for making the time available and welcome. Well, thank um, you, Claire. Thank you for the invitation. It's a, a great pleasure to be here. Lovely to have you. Now, I wonder if you could tell uh, listeners, some who will know you very well and others who, who may not, tell us a bit about yourself and your different roles in the sector, um, as well as what you're here to do at Swinburne. 
Well, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here again. Thank you. Uh, I've spent about 20 years working in international education now, uh, not all of them in this country. Uh, and I think like many people in our sector, I started off with some English language teaching uh, and then moved through junior roles, uh, working uh, first at the University of Melbourne and then at Deakin University uh, and gradually building up to, I suppose, a really strong focus on partnership and international relations. That was my key background in international education. Uh, I took a career break in 2013 and did the PhD that I might have done when I finished my undergraduate degree many years ago, uh, but on a totally different topic uh, and did a PhD at the University of Melbourne, looking at the international dimensions of academic work. So really putting academic staff under the microscope and trying to understand what kind of incentivized and motivated their behavior in relation to the international activities that they engaged in, which was fascinating coming on the back of my professional work. I then had the wonderful opportunity to go to University College Dublin in Ireland, uh, which is the largest university of the seven universities in the Republic of Ireland. And, and maybe we could say a big fish in a small pond. Um, it's Ireland's global university, and I headed up the international office there, uh, had full uh, responsibility for all of the international operations of the institution, and then helped to develop a, a new strategic plan uh, over the last kind of couple of years, doing that in the middle of COVID, of course, which was uh, challenging, shall we say. Uh, and then much more recently, I think I'm on day eight now, uh, I'm delighted to join Swinburne University of Technology as Pro Vice-Chancellor Global Engagement. Uh, I think as many listeners will know, Swinburne has new leadership under uh, Vice-Chancellor uh, Pascal Cuesta uh, and has set some new directions to be a distinctive University of Technology over the coming period. My task is to uh, help the university to develop an international strategy moving forward uh, and to lead the international operations of the university. Uh, and on day eight, I am really uh, enjoying the challenge of that so far. I've done a lot of reading uh, and uh, I'm working through a long list of committees that I'm either chairing or a members of, uh, member of. Uh, so uh, really looking forward to kind of sinking my teeth into that institution a bit more. Brilliant. And uh, what a, what an interesting time to, to be starting in that role. And we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. But you've mentioned your time um, at University College Dublin. And I guess you've been watching the Australian uh, international education sector from the outside. And I wonder from that perspective, what have been some of the key differences in international education that you've observed between what's happening in Europe and what people are thinking about and, and focused on and what you've seen us doing here uh, in Australia? Well, I've certainly been keeping an eye, or I shall say a foot in both camps. I mean, working as an Australian in Europe for the last five years uh, has been fascinating. Uh, and I think I can really separate my answer into a pre-COVID and a, a post-COVID kind of response. I think pre-COVID, there were limited differences in approach between uh, some of the, I'll say the English-speaking European uh, universities in Ireland and the UK uh, and, and Australian universities. You know, we've strong focus on building an international reputation, a kind of holistic approach to global engagement, encompassing research and uh, teaching and learning. Uh, and, you know, I think like many of the Australian universities, really uh, focusing in on a global experience for all students and for all staff, whether that was uh, through a mobility program or, or through some type of internationalization on campus. 
Um, and of course, you know, uh, in my context at University College Dublin, that was underpinned by a very professional set of business operations in student recruitment, uh, in business development for transnational and other activities, uh, and um, business models like running offshore offices and offshore hubs. Uh, and that, I think, was fairly similar pre-COVID to what I saw here. I think since COVID, we've seen some very marked differences, of course, in the national response and then in and how the higher education sector then responds to that national response. Um, I mean, the key differentiator has to be the fact that Ireland kept its borders open at all times during COVID-19. For those that have an understanding of Irish uh, social and political affairs, the border with Northern Ireland uh, was a significant talking point for a long time and has been through all of the Brexit considerations. And so the border had to, that border had to remain open and our air borders remained open as well. Travel was much more difficult, uh, but the borders remained open. And, and it, what has been fascinating to me is to compare the different approaches that these countries have undertaken. Ireland certainly had a containment and a mitigation strategy around COVID rather than an eradication strategy. And so I think what I saw there was that we as a society were learning to live with COVID a little more effectively than maybe has happened here in Australia due to exposure to the virus. One of my children asked me when we returned to Australia, Dad, what's an exposure site? Because there was no there was no exposure site reference in Ireland because everywhere was an exposure site throughout the full 18 months of the lockdown that we had. And the other, of course, fundamental difference between Ireland and Australia is Ireland has a single layer of government and it's a small country. So there was much more close intersection between the, the seven universities, the seven research intensive universities and the government agencies responsible for uh, the various programs that supported mobility of students and staff. Of course, the, the fundamental difference there was Brexit. Brexit actually was finalised in the middle of COVID, and that had a, a, a significant effect on Ireland and the work that we were doing, and Ireland's position within Europe as then the only English-speaking kind of destination. Uh, and we were, of course, as uh, with a, a land border with Northern Ireland, constantly looking at the UK's responses to COVID-19, which were quite different, uh, quite different to Ireland. So again, uh, I think some some similarities and some parallels there, uh, but quite different in the in the national response to COVID-19. And so then you've been able to continue, or you were while you were still there, uh, Ireland's been able to continue to welcome students, albeit with some restrictions on travel, uh, and they've been able to uh, integrate it at the start of, uh, you know, their, their new year um, into their studies, albeit they may have done some of them off campus. Is that what you're, you're sort That's of sharing? That's right. So yep. the borders remained open and we were able to continue bringing new students and returning students into the country throughout COVID-19. There was a single semester when we didn't send our own students on overseas exchange to Europe and further afield, uh, but then that was opened up afterwards with significant, I would say, both for the outbound and the inbound mobility, significant additional risk mitigation put in place either within the institution or at national level. And so the seven universities in Ireland uh, were working very closely with government around uh, international student arrival plans and had put in place multiple additional uh, things, things that we'd never done before uh, in relation to student safety and the safety of the broader community. And that was, I think, the key consideration for government at the time, as it is in Australia, about the safety 
safety of the community at large. Uh, but we were able to bring in, uh, you know, not not to quite the same level as it happened previously in terms of, of students being mobile, uh, but we were able to bring in very large numbers of students, uh, bring them in safely, and then educate them locally, often in fully online environments that we actually weren't able to deliver on campus for quite significant periods of time, or, or only very limited uh, campus delivery around uh, some of the laboratories and practical classes. Uh, but we, no, we were able to make that happen. And I think then Ireland and other countries countries then present a model for Australia about how it can be done and how it can be done safely. Of course, it is predicated on uh, borders being open and there being the appropriate uh, mechanisms to enable arrivals to actually quarantine or self-isolate. And we had uh, graded graded responses in relation to self-isolation or or formal quarantine based on the uh, the government's traffic light uh, system for different countries. So, yeah. So you have a, a wealth of experience. I suspect you're going to be uh, in amongst all those committees and other things that you're involved in uh, and, and getting to grips within the new role, having directly managed that those risks to both students and uh, and the community. I suspect you're going to be a, a man in much demand as we move in that direction. So turning now, if I can, to your new role, heading up global engagement at Swinburne, the obvious challenge that that the university faces is to to rebuild uh, international student numbers post COVID. How do you intend to do that? And I'm particularly interested in the notion of greater diversification. We've seen the the federal government in the international student strategy um, consultation paper clearly signalling that it's looking for greater diversity in terms of the student cohort and in terms of delivery location. So they're uh, clearly looking for more um, offshore delivery and some of that potentially as online offshore. Talk us through, what, what are your grand plans for Swinburne, Douglas? Well, thanks, Claire. Look, it's day eight at Swinburne, so I, I don't think um, I have a grand plan as yet. Uh, but I think the key challenge we face is not simply in relation to international student mobility inbound, but I think it relates to uh, repositioning our understanding of where mobility, uh, and I say mobility in the broad sense of the term, sits in our international strategy. And, And so I'm talking about both staff and student mobility and whether it's inbound or outbound. Um, You know, I think at the moment what I see coming in from the outside is a relatively uh, limited focus on the lost opportunities that have been um, for Australian students that, you know, they haven't been able to gain an international study experience as part of their degree. uh, And that has a flow on effect over time for Australian employers. Similarly, our academic staff who are far more engaged in international research collaboration than their peers in other countries have been prevented from having that face-to-face contact that is absolutely crucial to nurture some of those research relationships. So I'm nervous about the impoverishment of of the work that we do as a global institution uh, kind of over time. Uh, And of course, we've, you know, we've we've all of the institutions and Swinburne is part of this have done wonderful work in in trying to develop new um, innovative kind of online mobility and internship offerings. Uh, Academic staff have continued their work in research collaboration with their peers around the world. Uh, But, you know, we are, um, we are an island nation. We are a long way from the rest of the world. 
Uh, and and if my PhD has taught me something, it's that actually uh, there is greater mobility of academic staff in Australia to go out to do their research collaboration than you find in other parts of the world. Uh, and that's actually a crucial element of what we do. So the question is really then, how do we rebuild or reposition mobility over time? Uh, certainly uh, thinking about um, greater diversity in our student population or, or you know thinking about the locations of the things that we do, each of the universities now has a range of hybrid options available. Um, those options are not necessarily highly prized by our students. And I, like you, have been looking at the quilt uh, results from the survey that was conducted last year. Uh, Swinburne had its presentation yesterday on its international student barometer results as well. And those give us uh, a collect, or collectively for me, they give me a picture of a cohort of current uh, students, international students, who are not particularly happy with what they are receiving. Um, now, Swinburne has had a long focus on transnational education. We have a campus in Sarawak. I think many people know that and a relatively more recent operation in Vietnam and in other locations. So I think like, like many institutions, we are uh, able to respond to a, a, a new um, environment through either hybrid online delivery uh, with on-campus or through transnational enrollment. And there is a fluidity and a flexibility between those modes of enrollment. I think what we really need to understand is what students actually want. Um, and we know that students in many countries do not want a fully online education. They want a face-to-face -face experience and they want the lived experience of being in another country. Uh, at University College Dublin, we were sending students overseas on exchange to fully online environments, but they wanted to go and live in the country and have the lived experience of being there, even if their study was fully online. And I think we have to remember that this is an important part of that international education. You know, my my sense is that we need to prepare for our borders to remain closed until later in 2022. Uh, I, I've even started to think about 2023 as the, being the real opening time. Uh, and the big question for me then is what is the reputational damage that Australia suffers along the way and how do we mitigate that reputational damage now? Uh, I'm really looking forward to working closely with the Victorian government and with the Commonwealth government on some of the, the renewed campaigns to actually promote studying with Australia. Uh, and, and when I say promote, possibly defend that in the eyes of some. I, I look at some of the vitriol on Twitter uh, around kind of reflections of Australia's closed borders. Uh, and I do think that will take a long time to rebuild. Um, and I think we need to be aware of that. And I'm looking forward to engaging with the federal government's, you know, international education strategy to actually see about how we frame that rebuilding over time. Evidently, there is capacity to think about different modes of delivery, but we have to make sure that we're market appropriate here. Uh, and I think that that market testing, and that market understanding will be crucial. How interesting and how important that you've actually lifted, uh, and it was quite a, a narrow uh, question that I posed, to actually you see and the university sees itself as part of a global community of academics and students and thinking about it in, in that more holistic way. I am a little depressed at your, I think, uh, from a planning uh, perspective, yes, uh, thinking about 2022 as potentially not hugely different from 2021 makes uh, sense. And I was on a uh, an advisory board meeting just yesterday and uh, the chair said the same thing. So I guess that's two learned people in uh, in two days. And I well, think... Claire, I do think that 2020.
It will be different for us. I think, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, I mean, I, we saw a very slow rollout of the vaccine in Ireland. It was very slow to get started. Uh, but once it got started, it really went at pace. And they're now up close to 80% of their population, of their adult population vaccinated. Um, and, and that has just, uh, you know, there's, there's been absolutely no question about people then kind of actually getting vaccinated in that country, mostly with AstraZeneca vaccine as well. Uh, so again, you know, I think that will pick up pace. And so I'm sure that our life will be different in 2022 whether we then have the capacity to bring in large numbers of students and enable our students to go overseas, whether we're comfortable with doing that is a totally different question. Uh, but that's something that I'm looking forward to engaging, as I say, with, with colleagues within Victoria uh, and more broadly across Australia on those kind of key conversations. Brilliant. Uh, Douglas, I could uh, listen to you uh, all day and I look forward to um, watching what you do um, in your time as, as you, you know, move beyond the, the eight-day mark uh, at Swinburne. And I certainly um, thank you for your time and wish you and your colleagues all the very best with what, it, what you're doing. It's my pleasure, Claire. Lovely to speak to you and it's great to be back home.